And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. The next two podcasts that I do, one on fixed distributions and the second on flexible or variable distributions, are two of the favorite that I produce. I think that deciding how much we can take out of our investments in retirement, it's one of the biggest decisions that we make. It has a lot to do with the lifestyle that we live. It has to do with our peace of mind over believing we have enough to last a lifetime, or maybe we don't. Uh, It has to do with control. And it's interesting because if you look at all of the different podcasts that I produce that have to do with trying to help people take better care of their money, at the end of the day, it's almost always about control. And we spoke, I spoke in the earlier podcast about the selection of certain equity asset classes, control. And then a podcast focused on how much to put in stocks, how much to put in bonds. Again, control, control of the likely return and control of the likely risk. And in the next two podcasts, I'm going to again talk about control. Control over how much you have in fixed income in retirement, how much you have in equities in retirement, how much you can take out of your investments in retirement. All of these have to do with control. And if this is your first time to go through this discussion with me, I think you may actually be amazed at how a a small change in either how much equity you have in the portfolio or how how, how much you take out of the portfolio can have a huge impact on both what you have to spend and what you have to leave to others. Now, to make this most worthwhile... I do suggest that you take the time to download the the fine-tuning your asset allocation table as well as tables on distributions, tables 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're going to look at a lot of numbers, and every number on each page is of some importance But I suspect if you're like me, we'd like to work our way down to the bottom line and see what the net result of a particular strategy might provide. Let me start with table one. Now, this this table is new because in the past, we've always started with the assumption that you would in 1970, have a million dollars to invest. Now, many of you may say, well, that's outrageous. I don't have anything close to a million. Doesn't matter. If you have 500,000, divide everything by two. If you have two million, multiply everything's by everything by two. But these are round numbers that I think make it very easy to, to compare and to adjust for 
different amounts that you might be investing. I'm going to go over to the far right because in this particular approach to taking money out of investing, we are talking about having an amount that we take on day one or the first year and having that be the base. It is an amount of money that we need. This might be somebody who who didn't retire with enough to be able to take out extra money without concern for running out of money uh, before running out of life. This is for the investor who saved enough. Maybe it's an investor who wanted to retire early and they went to an advisor or they figured out themselves, what is the minimum amount of money I can retire on and still believe that I won't run out of money before I run out of life? And in table one, that amount is $30,000. But this is starting in 1970. And I don't know that you're going to live the 46 years represented by this table, but maybe it's 30 years. Whatever the number of years you live, you are likely going to have to increase that $30,000 by inflation in order to maintain your lifestyle. So notice the first two columns on the far right before we start talking about investing the money. Let's see what happens to the distribution starting at $30,000 as we look back to 1970 and we see the inflation of 5.48. And at the end of that year, we need to up the ante for the inflation of the following year, which meant a distribution of 31645 And every year along the way, or at least almost every year along the way, there was an increase. And many years, it was a substantial increase. And I think it's interesting to, to go right down to the bottom of the page and notice that in order to replicate what $30,000 would buy in 1970, it required $187,568. Well, that's six times, six times what, uh, uh, what it was in uh, 1970. Now, as we look at these, the list of, 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 uh, inflation, annual inflation over these 46 years, and we see the increases that have to be made each year in order to maintain the lifestyle. Keep in mind that there probably the next 46 years won't look anything like this. There will be more or less inflation. And when it's more, it might come in a different time of the 46-year period. So, This is just to alert you that you are likely over the rest of your life to face inflation requiring larger distributions unless you want to give up some part of your lifestyle Um, and that it could be a lot more than you realize because 
the compounding of inflation or making money, it's the same. One is going backwards, the other's going forwards. But compounding is compounding. And when you have high inflation, it can be devastating. It can be more devastating than losses you might sustain in the market. So those two columns are important in terms of distributions. But now let's look at the other columns across here, starting, let's go over to the left side of this uh, page. And notice there's a column that says 100% bonds. Now, here's what we know. In 1970, if you invested the first day of the year a million dollars, and you received interest during the year, and you took out $30,000, at the end of that year, you were left with $1,102,625. In other words, you ended up with more uh, than you, you took out. So it was a net plus for the year. Now, I want you to notice as we move across the page and start adding 10% equity with each column, that there is a different year-end return. In fact, the year-end return uh, for the 10% stock, 90% bonds, was $1,085,870. By adding equity, taking more risk, you actually got in that year a lower return. And you will see as you move across the ta the, the, this table, that the more risk you took, adding 10% equity with each column, so that by the time you got all the way over to the 100% stock portfolio, you can see that you actually ended up with less than what you started, $939,000. So these columns represent a 46-year period, and just as I said before, it doesn't tell us as much about the next 46 years as, as we would like it to, but it's still meaningful information. But it shows that there will be years that by being defensive and having bonds in the portfolio, it left more money in your pocket at the end of the year. But let's Let's drop down for a second to the bottom of the page. And what we see, in fact, we don't even have to go to the bottom of the page. Let's go down to 1989. You've now had 20 years of distributions. What was originally a $30,000 distribution, now, after adjusting for inflation, requires $96,000. That was a, very, a period of very high inflation. And you can see that in the numbers on the far right-hand side. In fact, noticed in 79 and 80, inflation rate was 13% and 12%. I mean, it was, it was out of control. But having added some equity to the portfolio over that 20-year period, you go from 
no equity with 1.97 million to 10% equity with 2.47 million. Just adding, just adding an additional 10% or the first 10% to the portfolio gave you an extra $500,000. Now let's remember where these numbers come from. These numbers come from the five, I'm talking about the return numbers to build these tables, come from the fine-tuning table, which I hope you have printed out. And there, what we see is over that entire 46-year period, the all-bond portfolio made 6.2 versus the 10% equity, 6.8. So basically, it just took a little bit of equity to add a little bit of juice to the portfolio. Remember, stocks and equities are about growth. Bonds or fixed income are about stability. And over that 20-year period from 1970 to 1989, that little bit of equity made a difference. And as you run your finger across that 1989 20-year result, you will see that by the time you get to a 50-50 stock bond portfolio, that during this 20-year period, that million dollars grew to $5.4 million, as as opposed to about $2 million for the all-fixed income. Two and a half times. Two and a half times the return for investing half of the portfolio uh, in, in, uh, in stocks. And if we go all the way to the bottom of the page and we look at the 46-year what's left after taking out your 30000 plus inflation for all 46 years at the same time as you're earning a certain amount, sometimes losing, but earning money over that 46-year period. And I think this is worth, particularly for you very conservative investors, please note that the all-bond portfolio in 2015, now I'll After 46 years, I'll be long dead, so it won't matter for me, but it will for some. You'll notice that you ended up with almost 600,000. But if you had 10% in equities, almost 2.8 million. If you had 20% in equities, uh, about 5.7 million. If you had 30% in equities, 9.5. Now, What is important as you look at those increases each year, that each year the return in order to add the amount of money that you did was an increase of about uh, 0.5 to 0.6%. So they weren't huge differences. They were relatively small differences. And in this particular case, each one of these small differences came from one thing, adding a massively diversified equity portfolio to your holdings. 
So they're certainly, at, at, at least from everything we know about the past, even in, including the terrible market of 73 and 74 and 87, the, you know, the 22% decline in one day in 1987, and the 2000 through 2002 bear market, and the 2007 through 2009, even with all of those terrible things you had to go through, the premium for that was huge. Not only for you, but the people that you help after you are gone. Also, I want to focus on the S&P 500 for a minute. Now, this is a very conservative fixed distribution schedule. Most people have said for decades that a 4% or 40,000 on a million would be a conservative distribution schedule. But now, because interest rates are low and the market hasn't been very productive recently, a lot of people want to know, how would I do if I had uh, only took out 30000 instead of more? And you'll be surprised uh, what each $10,000, additional $10,000 does uh, to the bottom line. But I want you to look at the S&P 500 third column from the right. Now, the S&P is all equity, so it is not low risk. It is nothing like having 10% in equity. In fact, it's nothing like looking at looking at uh, of having 50 or 60% in equity. But I want you to notice a couple things about the S&P 500. It did okay. Go to the bottom. You know, we always like to talk about the bottom line. Okay, there's the bottom line. The million dollars after paying out $4.98 million left some $26.7 million for heirs. But it was a wild ride. I mean, look at 74 and uh, the ending value at the end of 1974 was 761,558. Starting with a million? Worried about having your money last for the rest of your life? How would you feel about that? Hmm? Maybe moving on to something more conservative? I suspect so. And if not you, certainly your spouse would like to do it. But notice something that I think should give us a lot of hope and to remind ourselves how important defense is to what it is that we earn as an investor, what we're left with. Remembering it's not what we make that counts, it's what we keep. So looking at the 60% equity, then slash 40 40% fixed income, going to the bottom of the page, almost the same. In fact, a little more, $27,918,000 versus $26,725,000. So you actually made more money with the 60-40 than you did with the 100% equity. And theoretically, we always think about equity providing a better long-term return than something that's more conservative. But that's not so when you're going through a period of distribution, which is what retirement for most of us is about. But there's one other thing. I like to suggest strategies that I think 
you could maintain for the rest of your life. And I know one of the reasons I don't actively advocate for market timing is because I don't think you can maintain it. Market timing is not an evil thing, but it's an evil thing to try to do because it turns you emotionally inside out. But buy and hold is easier. So I trust that most people could probably do a good buy and hold strategy as long as the pain of loss didn't get too great. So let's go back to what I noted about the S&P 500. Starting with a million in 1970, by the end of 1974, down to 761,000. And I promise you there is not only financial pain at that moment, but there's emotional pain if not from one of a couple, from both of a couple. Asking yourself, what did I do? In fact, I know a lot of people who are in retirement and still 100% in equities. And I say, why? You don't have to do that anymore. Well, they want to make the most that they can, and that's what they believe they should do. But go over for a second to the the column 6040, and notice that at the end of 1974, the value was $966,000, not $761,000. And it was that defense. It wasn't the offense that that made the 6040 do better than the S&P 500. It wasn't the offense. It was the defense. And this page is filled with defense. Many stocks of many companies, of many industries, of many big and small and value and growth. And then there's the fixed income, low expense. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that defense is built into this page. But the one that jumps out at me is that defense from the fixed income and how that, what that does to the bottom line. Now, I don't want you to think that just because there's defense back there in 1974, it means in every situation in the future, you're going to have more money with the defensive strategy than the offensive strategy. And to see that, I want you to go out just uh, 10 more years. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's go out to 19... 89, uh, 1999, and and look at the, where the 60-40 was at the end of 1999, about 12.4 million, whereas the S&P 500 at that point was almost 16.8 million. So there will be times when the more aggressive strategy will be ahead. You know, the defensive people are just sitting there thinking, yeah, but your day is coming, fella, because there's going to be some bad times and my defensive strategy of having some fixed income in the portfolio is going to save me from the kind of pain you're probably going to feel. Well, we all know we don't know the future. We can't know the future. But I can go to the year, I'm looking again at the 60-40 column, and I'm looking at the uh, 19. I'm sorry, 2010 year-end result, 23.7 million dollars. I take my finger over and I look at the comparable return over there at the S&P 500, 
15.5 million. That is not because of the upside. It's because of the downside. And the S&P didn't have any protection. So this is an, uh, I'd call it an ultra conservative, not just very, but very ultra conservative strategy, particularly if, if you have some fixed income in your portfolio. And, and certainly if we look back at the last um, 46 years, it certainly would have been quite all right to have been 40% equities. In fact, 30% equities might have uh, given you even a greater sense of security, but you're not taking very much out. You see, in a bear market, in an all-equity portfolio, not only are you, uh, particularly if you're starting with a, a, a larger distribution each year, you're going to be aggressive in terms of the rate of, of distributions, aggressive in the exposure to risk, and going to be hurt badly from bear markets, more than likely. So that is table one. Now I'd like to move on to table two. Now I think it's very important to understand that there is only one thing different in table two from table one, only one thing. And that is in table two, we start with 40,000 instead of 30,000. And it would not be uh, unbelievable that you, you might think, well, that's not a huge difference. I mean, after all, we're starting with a million dollars. So you're taking out a little more money every month, but but it doesn't seem like it could be life-changing. Well, in a way, that extra $10,000 to live on would be kind of life-changing. So you start at 40000 and you adjust for the same inflation rates. And what happens is you're taking money out of the portfolio at a faster rate. One, because of the 40000 and two, because the inflation is on the 40000 instead of the inflation being on the 30000 And look what happens on the far left-hand side of this table. Isn't it interesting that there's a lot of white space here all of a sudden? Before every column went to the bottom of the page, you could have lived 46 years and you theoretically would have had enough money to live without outliving your money. But now all of a sudden, because of this additional $10,000 distribution, the fixed income all by itself isn't cutting it. With the 10% isn't cutting it and not cutting it to the bottom of the page. And in the 20% equity, it does not make it to the bottom of the page. Now, it's interesting to note the difference. I'm looking at the column 10 slash 90. That's 10% equity, 90% fixed income. I happen to know from the fine-tuning table that strategy made 6.8% a year. Now, I don't expect you to remember how much that column, that column 1090 column, 
had at the end of the 46 years, but I'll remind you, uh, two point, almost $2.8 million. So not only did you lose access to $2.8 million, but you lost access to money at all from 2008 through 2015. This increase from 30 to 40,000 was huge. Now, as we go across the table, we see what happens here. We make it to the bottom of the page with the 30% in uh, equities. You don't leave very much to your kids, but you make it to the bottom of the page. Had you only taken out $30,000, you would have been left with almost $10 million. And notice again as we move across the page, the distributions keep going up once we have enough to get past the bad times. So there was an advantage in this particular case to having some aggressive, more aggression, better ability to last with a 4% or $40,000 distribution. Now let's do that same little exercise of comparing the S&P 500. Let's compare it, for example, to the 60% equity portfolio. 5.7 million for the S&P, 14.5 for the 60% equity. 9 million for the 50-50, equity. Now, truly, those are home runs compared to, to the S&P 500. How many times in your investing lifetime have you heard somebody say that the S&P 500 is really, really hard to beat? Very few professionals beat it. It turns out, under certain conditions, which a, a period of time that includes some bear markets in it, that it may be the S&P 500 is easy to beat, and you beat it with bonds. You don't beat it by necessarily adding small cap or internationals. You can beat it by adding bonds. So 40000 this was the old conservative strategy. You can see that there are conditions under which you don't make it to the bottom of the page. Again, I think it's interesting to take a look at the year 1989 because you're 20 years into it. Let's see, I'm 72. I think I could live another 20 years, possible, at least not impossible. But with the all fixed income, a million becomes worth a million sixty-four. Uh, the with 10% equity, it's a million four sixty-one. And then a million nine twenty-seven. Just like before, every year the payout is higher because you've added some equities. And again, as we've seen just a minute ago, that can all turn over and go the other way. But over a long period of time, having some equities in the portfolio is a very smart decision. I said it earlier, this 46-year period, while it's a long period of time, doesn't tell you as much about the future as you would like. Let me give you an example. 
Now, I made the point that an all-equity portfolio was terrible because it couldn't withstand the beating of the bear markets it had to go through while the money was being taken out. But right next to the S&P 500 is a column that says 100% stocks. Now that's, remember the ultimate buy and hold strategy, the big, the small, the value, the growth, the U.S., the international, the REITs, the emerging markets. That is that portfolio. 10% each of a whole bunch of different asset classes versus the S&P 500, the 500 great U.S. companies that so many people see as the center post of their portfolio. As you look at the column, the 100% stock column, you will notice as you go to the bottom that instead of 5.7 million, it's 49.6 million. And, you know, it's hard to believe that would happen again, but it could. We do know the S&P 500 is probably the highest quality asset class with com compared to all the rest of them that we put into that ultimate buy and hold strategy. But what I need to remind investors is that over that period of time, the standard deviation, the volatility of the worldwide 100% stock portfolio is actually lower than the S&P 500. Now, that's one way to look at it. If I looked at the worst 12 months, the worst 12 months for the S&P 500 was 43.3 for the all-world 100% stocks, a minus 51.1. So here's the bottom line. You had to be willing to lose another 7% in order to theoretically have a difference of 5.7 versus 49.6 million. Again, it's the past. It could be absolutely all 100% real, but it doesn't change the fact that the future will look different. And what it would take, I think, for the future to really look different, let's forget about the fixed income. Just focus on the S&P 500 versus this more massively diversified portfolio. It would mean that the S&P 500 would have to come in either the fifth best uh, to the first best. Um, and that isn't likely because the rest of those asset classes are more risky. All right, let's move on to table three, where we expose ourselves to even more risk. Instead of taking out thirty or forty thousand, we're going to up the ante to five percent or fifty thousand. Now, I will say right now that there is a way to do fifty thousand safely more safely than what you see on this table. And I believe that so much that my wife and I, in fact, take 5% uh, every year out of our portfolio. So I do hope that you will join me for next week's podcast, 
where I do talk about not the fixed distribution, but the flexible. But here we are in a fixed distribution schedule. We start with 50000 We up the ante every year by inflation. And in order to cover this period of time, the million dollars has to produce $8.3 million. Now let's compare that for a second to the $40,000 distribution. It needed to get $6.6 million out, and the 3% distribution, or $30,000, had to get four point almost $5 million. So it requires that you take out a lot more money. And to the extent that you do make it through the whole 46-year period, and you don't run out of money, you sure as heck aren't leaving very much to anybody else. So, let's look at this table, table three. Remember, we're only upping the ante by 10,000 from the last table. And before, in the last table, we did have some, some columns that didn't go to the bottom. In fact, there were three of them. But now... There's all the way from 100% bonds to 50-50 stocks and bonds. So six, six columns out of the 11 uh, do not make it to the bottom. And in fact, if you look in the 100% bond portfolio, you run out of money by some time during 1990. Um and and it, you get a few more years with the 10% equity. You make it through sometime in 92. But this is not a pleasant picture. It's a worrisome picture. And what if it turned out that the market was not as good as it was in those years? You could run out of money sooner. Now, the S&P 500... Boy, this is amazing. We go from taking out 30000 with the S&P 500 ending up with $26 million plus. Then we go to 40000 and you end up with $5.7 plus. But now, by the year 1993 approximately, you're totally out of money. And if you went out 20 years, let's just look out the 20 years because every one of these strategies made it to the 20, first 20-year 20 mark. And on the far left-hand side, you would have been left with $158,000 in the 100% bonds at the end of 89. 448 at the end of 89 with 10% equity. 794 with 20% equity. A million two with 30% equity. A million six, etc. I mean, certainly the further across the page you get, the more money you're left with, but none of them are as good as taking out the 30% or the 40% at distributions. So this is scary. This tells me that if you are an investor who has not saved more than what I will call enough, the minimum, 
the amount that will, if if you're prudent, will like likely last a lifetime. In fact, I would suggest something else about the people who in, who invest with a minimum. I really think that you have to work a lot harder than folks who've got more than they need to watch your your spending habits. The case can be made. And the more I think about it, the more I believe it, that probably the key to successful investing over our lifetime is not about our saving habits. It's not about our investing habits. It's probably about our spending habits. And people who have over a lifetime the ability to control their spending habits, to adjust their spending habits, they have the best chance of making it through unscathed, I guess. Well, we're all, we all have to face some problems, but people who can control spending, whoa, what an advantage that is. All right, let's go on to table number four, the last table for this podcast. It doesn't take much time to discuss this one because a picture is worth a thousand words here. It's a picture of only one column making it to the bottom of the page. Only three columns making it to the year 2000. And the S&P 500, instead of collapsing to nothing in 1994, collapses to nothing in about 1985. And uh, what do you think it felt like to sit there in the S&P 500 and see it going down from a million to 635? Oh, and then it bounces back up to 758 and then 829. And your spouse who was complaining because you were losing, you're taking credit for having convinced your spouse to stay in there because in the long run, these things work out. Well, they worked out for a while. Then they turned around and eventually headed south. And uh, they just couldn't make, they couldn't make enough to make up for not having saved enough during the catastrophic period. But most of us in the, in the industry will say that taking out 6% is, uh, and, and, and adding inflationary adjustments to your cost of, of living, um, that that's a recipe for disaster. And what's interesting is that about 30% of investors, according to some major studies, about 30% of investors are taking out 7% or more. Now, I'll tell you where the difference probably is and why some of them may get away with it is they don't inflation adjust. In fact, they downsize and downsize and downsize in order to make it. Or maybe in many cases, they're very old and they don't, they don't need the money to last very many years, or maybe they're not in good health and they don't need the money to last a whole lot longer. You can see how important the decisions are when you retire and how much money you have and, and what your distribution strategy is going to be. What is pretty obvious is that 
with small adjustments. Now, a small adjustment from 40000 a year to 30000 a year, and, and by the way, there is an assumption there's income maybe from Social Security or a pension, so that this 30000 isn't all you have to spend to live on. But that what you may have to do is uh, you may have to make adjustments in your lifestyle and and not just go up every year automatically by the by the amount of uh, uh, of inflation. At some point, if you've gotten too aggressive uh, with your retirement distributions, and you spend your money down to where you can just see that you are not likely to have the money you need, the step that most of you should probably take is to uh, talk to somebody, uh, and there are only a few companies I recommend, um, Vanguard, USAA, and I think you ought to check with Stan, the annuity man. Sounds kind of silly, I know, but his prices are very competitive and he gives amazing service. But if you can't cut it, taking distributions from your investment portfolio, you may be able to convert that to a single premium ver- uh, annuity, life annuity, that would pay you out 7 or 8% a year of what you have there. That may be the only way you'll ever be able to take out enough to meet the, the lifestyle that you'd like to have in retirement. So this is all about fixed. This is all about people who haven't saved enough. In next week's podcast, I'm going to address those who decided to stay in there and work longer, even if you didn't love the job, because you wanted to retire with enough, more than you need, to give yourself the flexibility to take more out of your investments in retirement without having to worry about running out of money before running out of life. I do hope that you will share this information with others. I do suggest that when you encourage them to maybe listen to this podcast or look at the tables, that they start with the ultimate buy and hold strategy. Understand the asset classes that are selected. Then move on to fine-tuning your asset allocation. To understand the implications of balancing how much in stocks, how much in bonds. And finally, to this distribution uh, podcast and the tables. Uh, And then finally, next week's podcast on flexible distributions. Thank you as always for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.